So it's wonderful uh, to be able to finally gather together after nine crazy, crazy months. And I'm very privileged. Advent literally means coming in Latin. So in Advent, we look back on Jesus' first coming uh, and uh, Christmas. We reflect on the meaning of Christmas. And we also look forward to his second coming. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that Christmas has become really a, a cultural phenomenon all around the world, not just in the Western world. And for the most part, its religious significance has taken a back seat. So as Christians, we want to cut through all of that reindeers and Christmas trees and jingle bell rock. And we want to ask ourselves, why did Christmas need to happen? What is the true meaning of Christmas? Why did the Son of God need to become human? And the book of Hebrews answers this question. So the text that I want to focus on today is uh, from Hebrews chapter 2. But before we delve into today's passage, let's just do a quick whistle-stop tour of Hebrews. We'll start at the very beginning of Hebrews, okay? So Hebrews chapter 1, the first few verses. I'm told that I can press this in any direction, but it's not working. <laughs> okay. uh, all right, thank you. All right. So um, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, and I'm reading from ESV, so if it's a bit different to um, uh, your uh, translation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. So in the opening words of Hebrews, the author paints for us a, a very exalted picture of Christ. He is God's final word to humankind. So God spoke by the prophets in the past, but now in the last days, he has spoken by someone far superior to the prophets, his own son. And this son is the one through whom God created the world, and who has been appointed heir of all things. In other words, Christ is the beginning and the end of all things. He's the source and the goal of all things. And clearly these are not words that just describe a mere man. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. I don't think the author can make it any clearer that Jesus is not just a human being. He's divine. He's the equal of God. He's the one uh, who's, uh, who is God's glory made visible. He's identical to God, and yet he's distinct from God the Father. He made the universe on behalf of God, and he continues to uphold the universe moment by moment. So the physical universe would disintegrate and cease to exist if it were not for the power of the Son of God, continuously sustaining its existence and order. So let's now fast forward to chapter 2. Uh, okay, this is not chapter 2, but uh, in chapter 2, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews uh, quotes extensively from Psalm 8. So I just wanted to bring up Psalm 8 here first, just the first few verses. Psalm 8, the author David meditates on the greatness that God intended for humanity when he created them. So just the first few verses. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So Psalm 8 begins with David marveling at the splendor of God's creation, the universe. It's like he's lying down in the middle of the night, looking up at the cloudless sky, looking at the moon and the stars. He's just overwhelmed by how tiny and how inconsequential human beings are in the vastness of this universe. That may have happened to you before. And in Hebrews 2, the author picks up this passage from Psalm 8. So, He says in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The psalm is talking about humankind. So when it says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, that's referring to humankind, humanity. Human beings are made for a little while lower than the angels. But God's creation intent is to crown humanity with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. But there is a problem. And the problem is that that's not what we see. Human beings don't seem to be ruling over the earth as they should be. So in the second half of verse 8, which is here, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That means God will subject everything without without exception under humanity. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see humanity crowned with glory and honor, quite the reverse. We don't see humanity in control of everything. If you ever thought that, this pandemic year would have rid you of your fantasy. What do we see instead? Verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see one human being who does fulfill God's design for humanity. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, and this refers to God the Son's temporary state of humiliation when the glory that he had from the beginning of the world as God's Son was hidden. He lived the life of a humble, normal, common, poor man. He went to the most humiliating death on the cross, naked. He was indeed made lower than the angels, but only for a while. And with his resurrection and ascension to God's right hand in heaven, he's now crowned with glory and honor, and God has placed everything in subjection under his feet. So Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. He's the archetypal man of Psalm 8. Now, we don't see humanity in general fulfilling Psalm 8 yet, but we do see the man, Jesus, fulfilling it. He fulfills it for us, ahead of us. To, to, uh, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits, 
and we will follow in his footsteps. He does it for us and he enables us to one day also fulfill it. He's able to do this precisely because of the incarnation. The pre-existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, added human flesh to himself. He became a man and he will always remain a man. If God the Son did not become a man, we would forever be left in our state of sin and humiliation and judgment and we would never be able to fulfill God's glorious design for us. And that brings us to the passage that we're focusing on today, verses 10 to 18. The author of Hebrews explains several reasons why God the Son had to take on human flesh and blood. The first one, God the Son became a man to sanctify and glorify us. So in verses 10 to 13, let me read verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one for whom and by whom all things exist refers to God the Father. So what he's saying is it was entirely appropriate for God the Father to will for his son to become a man and to suffer in order to bring many sons to glory. Now I'm reading from the ESV, which is a bit different from the NIV that we read uh, in, the, uh, in the church Bible reading. So this reflects the original text uh, of the Greek a bit more closely. It says that Jesus brings many sons to glory. If you have the NIV, it broadens that to sons and daughters. That suits our modern sensibilities more. Now, of course, when the Greek talks about sons, it's not meant to exclude women or to imply that women are not important. The Bible refers to Christians, both men and women, as sons of God. And that's because in the ancient world, sons were heirs. They were the ones who got the family inheritance. That's what we are. Whether we're male or female, we are all heirs of God. So, just as male believers are referred to in Scripture as the bride of Christ, like female believers, so female believers are referred to in Scripture as sons of God. It's a figure of speech. Psalm 8 says that God's intention for humanity is that they be crowned with glory and honor, and that is exactly what Jesus does for us. He brings us along with him to glory, bringing many sons to glory. And how does he achieve this? By dying. So when we looked at verse 9 before, it says Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And he tastes death for everyone. Now this uh, death of Christ is the wisdom of God that the world simply can't comprehend. I mean the idea that God becomes a man is somewhat questionable to most people, but the idea that this God become man person has to die, and not just any death, not a hero's death in battle, but the death of a criminal on a cross, fully exposed to the world's mockery and shame, that is simply incomprehensible and preposterous. But God doesn't think or act like us. His ways and his thoughts are far above ours. So what the world regards as foolishness and shame, 
is God's wisdom. What the world sees as a sign of weakness is God's display of power. God sees it as fitting for the eternal son to become a human being in order to bring many sons to glory. That's how important we are to God. This son therefore becomes the founder of our salvation, or in the NIV, the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who makes salvation possible. The reason that we can be saved and brought to glory is because Jesus sanctifies us. In verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Sanctify, in NIV we read, uh, means to make holy. Jesus is the one who, who makes us holy. He's the sanctifier, we are the sanctified. And it says here that we all have one source. We share a common origin, that is, God the Father. Of course, there is a difference between Jesus and us. We are creatures, we are created by God. We begin to exist and are born at a particular point in time. But Jesus' origin from the Father is not the same as our origin from the Father. He's not created. He's God's unique Son. He's the one and only begotten Son of God from eternity. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't emphasize the differences between us and Jesus. He emphasizes our commonalities. He says we share the same source. Jesus is the Son of God. We are sons of God. And therefore, the eternal Son of God is not ashamed to call us his brothers, the one through whom God created the whole universe, the bright radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He doesn't consider it beneath him to be our brother. In verse 12 and 13, we have quotations from some Old Testament texts. Uh, verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That comes from Psalm 22. And verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And that comes from Isaiah 8. Now, the gist of these Old Testament verses is to make the case that Jesus is our brother. He's our spiritual head, our spiritual father, who is in solidarity with us. He identifies with us. He's intimately linked to us. Now the next point in this passage, God the Son became a man to defeat the devil and our fear of death. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 14 says that Jesus had to partake of flesh and blood and become one of us so that through death he might destroy the power of the devil over us. So the devil holds the power of death. What does that mean? It's not... Uh, because the devil has any inherent, inherent right to put us to death, that's God's right, it's because death came into the world as a result of sin. And sin came because the devil seduced humankind to rebel against God. So we have all gone over to the devil's side and are under his power. We all fear death. Western culture sanitizes death 
medicalizes death, but for the most part, just doesn't talk about death. We push it out of the public consciousness, we push it out of polite conversation, but it's still there in the background, like the elephant in the room, terrorizing us. Now, in Asian culture, like uh, Chinese culture that most of us here come from, people are scared to death of death, right, so to speak. Uh, there's so many superstitions, taboos surrounding death. You can't mention death on an auspicious occasion, like during Chinese New Year. Uh, if your family member recently died, you're not supposed to go and join somebody's wedding in case you bring bad luck on their marriage, things like that. Uh, I work as a doctor, and what are patients scared of? Well, they're scared of being told that you, they have cancer. They're scared of being told they have motor neuron disease, anything that will kill them. Now, I'm sure none of us like to be told that we have cancer. We live our whole lives in slavery to the fear of death, it says here. And into this situation comes Jesus to deliver us from our fear of death, from the power of the devil. Jesus conquers death through death. That is, he needs to die to set us free from death. But God cannot die. Only man can die. So God had to become a man in order to die. That was the primary purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God. He added to himself human flesh and blood in order to die. He was born to die. The cradle of Christmas always had in mind the cross of Good Friday. In dying, Jesus destroyed the power of the devil over us and broke the fear that death held over us. Are you afraid of death? Jesus has come to deliver you from that fear. Those of us who are in Christ do not need to fear death because death means being in Christ's presence forevermore. Death is salvation for us. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory, it says in 1 Corinthians, because of what Jesus had done for us on the cross. The next point here is that God the Son became a man to be our faithful high priest. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now we saw in Psalm 8 how uh, human beings are made a little lower than the angels. Now how much more glorious do angels seem compared to us? You know, we are the only beings that God made which are a curious mix of the physical and the spiritual. The angels are purely spiritual beings. The animals are purely physical beings. But human beings alone are uniquely body and spirit. Now, angelic beings might seem superior, powerful spiritual beings, unlike us, weak mortals. But yet, it is not angels, but human beings that God has crowned with glory and honor. God the Son did not choose to become an angel, but a human being. He did not die for angels, but for human beings. It is not angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham. We've been going through Genesis in the last few months, and uh, we've looked at all the promises that God gave to, to Abraham, and these promises we inherit as his offspring. 
Of course Christ wouldn't sin. He's God, right? But it's not fair to expect me to be like Christ because he's God, I'm not God. Uh, I think we, a lot of us do think a bit like that. You know, it's easy for Christ because he's God. He can resist temptation, but I'm not like that. But that's not what the author of Hebrews says here. He says Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Now, in the book of James, it says God cannot be tempted. Jesus is both God and man, and as a man, he could be tempted, and he was tempted, as is very clear in the Bible. The temptations were genuinely felt, and they were not easy to overcome. Now, if you're a very sinful person, uh, you probably wouldn't struggle with temptation. You just give in. Okay? Those who struggle with temptation are those who are trying to be godly. The more godly you are, the more you will struggle because Satan will find more and more ways to try and break down your resolve. So if anything, Jesus, being the Son of God, would have felt the full brunt of temptation, much more strongly than we can imagine. Yet, yes, the fact Jesus is God means that he can't possibly sin, but that doesn't mean that as a man he did not find temptation real or difficult. But it's amazing that he never ever once ever sinned or yielded to temptation. Now, I would like to just uh, look at this passage in Hebrews from chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, the Son of God, is spoken of as learning obedience through what he suffered? Just like in our passage today in verse 10, where Jesus is described as being made perfect through suffering. Now, isn't Jesus already perfect because he's God? Well, perfection here doesn't refer to a moral perfection, but a suitability for a task, as in being perfect for a job, being mission-ready. God the Father was training Jesus for his role as Savior by sending him test after test until the ultimate test of the cross. It seems a shocking statement to us that Jesus had to learn obedience even though he was already the obedient Son of the Father from eternity. Even the incarnate Son of God had to be subject to God's training. Now what bearing does this have on us? Well, if Jesus, God's Son, had to learn obedience, how much more us? If he had to be trained and perfected through suffering, how much more us? Do you know that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were thinking of giving up the faith? They were tempted to give up believing in Jesus because the going was getting tough. They were facing mounting persecution. They were losing their homes. They were being publicly denounced and condemned. They were imprisoned and much else besides. So the temptation was for them to turn away from Jesus, go back to Judaism, and the, temptations, the, the persecutions would immediately stop. Now today, we are possibly on the cusp of increasing restrictions on the church, maybe persecution. As you heard, there's a bill before the Victorian Parliament 
which will criminalize teaching the traditional uh, scriptural teachings about sex and marriage. And the penalty will be 10 years in jail. Now what will we do if our jobs are taken away, if we have to lose our homes, if we have to go to prison for remaining faithful to Jesus? Jesus is one of us. He understands our suffering. He's been through it. He understands our temptation. He's been through it and worse. He's like us in every respect except for sin. He won't do for us to say, Jesus can't understand me because he's God and I'm not. Instead, let's look to Jesus and derive great comfort, encouragement and resolve from seeing how he endured the cross, despising its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. Not only is Jesus our example, he's our great high priest. He's our mediator, our intercessor, pleading his shed blood before the Father on our behalf. So take note of these words. For because he, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What temptation do you face? Is it discouragement? Do you feel incapable and weak? What sin do you struggle with? Is it pride or greed or sexual temptation? Lack of love, failure to forgive, resentment, preoccupation with the world? Whatever temptation you face, come to Jesus and pour your heart out to Jesus because he understands you and he's able to help. Now this is a season of joy for us. We are immensely privileged to have such a great saviour, such a great salvation, such a great and wonderful hope that nobody can take away from us. Nothing can stop us from rejoicing this Advent and this Christmas, not coronavirus, not the government or politics or anything, because of the amazing news for us, the Son of God became one of us. He's our brother, our saviour, our sanctifier, our great high priest. Let's worship him. Okay, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we are truly amazed at your grace and your love in sending your Son to become a man for our sake. We marvel at his condescension, his sacrifice for us. Who are we to deserve your attention? For what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet because of Jesus' death, you have crowned us with glory and honor. We give you great thanks and praise and we worship our Lord Jesus Christ who came to the manger on that first Christmas so that he could go to the cross for our salvation. Strengthen us to overcome temptation and to remain faithful to you always, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.